to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome back and we have a real treat today as we are going to spend just over an hour in the company of the very exceptional human of hospitality, Michel Rue Jr. Now I was particularly grateful that Michel took some time out of his diary right now to chat since most of you listening to this I'm sure will be aware of the death of his absolute legendary dad, Albert Rue on the 4th of January this year. Michelle is back from France to deal with the arrangements and the funeral and he's managing the challenges of his own closed businesses and yet was still generous enough to spend some time chatting to me for all of you listening to enjoy. I'd also just like to share what an utter privilege it feels to get to have a one-to-one conversation with such greats of our industry. With over 120 episodes now recorded, if you told me at the start of this podcast adventure that I would get to spend some quality time one-on-one with some of my hospitality heroes, I would have given you a skeptical glance or two. But as a result of so many of you listening on a regular basis and your emails of support and your subscriptions and your reviews of the podcast, you motivate me to get in touch with such great guests and you motivate those great guests to say yes to what is often a pretty detailed conversation. So thank you for joining me on this adventure. It really does mean a lot. Okay, best off I get out of the way and make some space for our guest. And we're going to touch on Michelle's family connections and following in the family legacy. We'll chat about the business side of being a chef and the importance of knowing your numbers and that successful restaurants are rarely only about the quality of the food. We touch on what else it takes and how you need to make a customer feel to really enjoy their visit and want to return regularly. We also touch on some of the cultural differences between France and the UK, as well as the differences in the casual dining sector and even the street food scene and whether we will ever see Michel in his very own street food truck. And of course, we cover the pandemic and Michel's hopes for the future. Yes, in business, perhaps more importantly, with his daughter and his grandson. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. I certainly did. Cheers. Michel Rue Jr., if ever there was a human of hospitality, I think literally being almost born in a kitchen and certainly brought up in one helps you qualify. You're a chef, restaurateur, media personality, author, father, runner. Uh, I'm very excited to chat to you. Where in the world are you joining me from today, Michel? Because unfortunately, we're not sat face to face, are we? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, we're not. And uh, I am uh, in Clapham, South London. Uh, and uh, looking out towards this lovely grey sky, uh, it's threatening to rain as usual. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So is that your home, or you're you're not in a in an office, presumably? No, not in an office. Um, uh, I've got a flat in the in Clapham, and I've lived I've lived here actually for well, gosh, o- over thirty years Bef- before Clapham became. Clams, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You're hanging out with the cool kids, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, so look, just just to start with, really sorry, sort of conscious of timing, really sorry to hear about the passing of your dad a couple of weeks ago. You must have been very proud to see this outpouring of love and support from so many people in the industry when the news broke. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I knew and I appreciated, you know, how much of a, a legend he was. Um, but wow. Yeah. I mean, just, just quite simply breathtaking. <clears throat> the 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 messages that I've received, the letters, the the book of condolences, which we've put up on our website as well. Um, some absolutely amazing little anecdotes and stories, which which just just fill me with joy reading it. Uh, I, I knew I had a special dad, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it just makes it even more special now. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right. Well, yeah, must be must be very humbling to receive it. But thank you for carving out some time to have a chat with me. Um, with that sort of very recognised family name, and and I know you, you know you knew from a very young age that you wanted to be a chef. Did you feel overwhelmed by that level of expectation? I'm thinking if I was David Beckham's kids, you know, the last place I might go is is on a football pitch to avoid that comparison. How did you find that in those early years, knowing what you wanted to do? Did you feel that sort of burden of the Rue name? I, I think so. <clears throat> in, in in many respects, um, uh, the the name Rue in France is, is very very common. It, it's as common as say Smith here in England. So when I left school at sixteen and went to work in France, yes, my boss and my colleagues knew that I came from a famous restaurateur uh, in England. But uh, in everyday life, um, college, etc., when I, when I was at college in France, no, no one knew me from from Adam. So, you know, it, it didn't really make that much difference. Um, but I suppose the burden was there because obviously, you know, the brothers had already carved, uh, you know, carved their, 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 their business. And, and, and of, of course, you know, the, the names, uh, Le Gavroche, the Waterside Inn was already well established. So I suppose, yeah, it's never going to be easy to follow in, in, in footsteps that big. But I, I always wanted to, as a child, I, I've always wanted to do the same as my dad and, and my uncle. And that's work in this wonderful industry that is ours, the hospitality industry. Yeah. So I speak to quite a lot. I, I tend to focus on the sort of the smaller, the independent side, I guess, of, of the hospitality sector. So I get to speak to a lot of family people and family businesses and often sort of multi-generational. And I, I think there's this external perception sometimes that, you know, you, you get an easy ride if you're going into the family business. But actually, quite often, the opposite is true. And, and any business owner you almost puts their kids, they, they don't want to just give them the opportunity. They want them to earn it, improve it, and maybe make it even harder than it would be if you weren't a member of the family. What was your experience as a kid in those early days when you were sort of a, a helping hand? Were you given a leg up or were you told you've got to work twice as hard as the next man? Ooh, twice as hard and more. Um, I, I think uh, Dad <clears throat> and and Uncle were were very very hard on um, on my myself and Alain. Uh, you know, we chose to be to follow them, uh, but they made damn sure that we knew how difficult it was it was and how much dedication we needed to achieve. Um, you know. Well, I was going to say, be as good as them. We're never going to be as good as them because they were the the forerunners. They are the ones that actually, uh, you know, started it all. So, yeah, they were tough. They were very. I mean, many many a times I, I was, you know, tears in my eyes working at at Lugavroche and uh, bringing up 
you know, stuff to the past in the old man. No, uh, uh, you know, but it was it was forming, and it was it was it was the right way, I think, to do it. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, I, my my first job was I think it was thirteen. Um, washing pots and pans uh, at one of the restaurants in the city, and and I did that to earn money to buy my first racing bike, uh, and then my first uh, stereo set as well. You know, so I'm working over the summer holidays, cleaning pans, uh, peeling spuds, uh, and such like. At the age of thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, um, you know, b- before actually going to uh, to hotel catering. So, uh, yeah, they. they they instilled in me uh, and in Allah a real value um, and a non, you know, knowledge and appreciation of hard work. And you, you know, you didn't get anything, uh, you know, for free. You had to work for it. Yeah, I'm going to play that clip back to my 13 year old son, who <laughs> thus far has not offered to come in and do the washing up and peel the carrots at my uh, my restaurant, Michelle. So uh, I'm going to I'll see if I can motivate him. I think times have times have changed uh, a little bit, I suppose. Although I guess Emily started pretty early did she your daughter how, how soon was she in the kitchen helping out or, or was oh, it was it later in the modern world yeah yeah absolutely i mean at, at a very very young age i mean probably about the same age as, as i did um and she always you know same as me said you know i want to be you know in the hospitality industry i want to work as a chef i want to do the same as my dad um so yeah very young age she would she would come in um to look at rush and I'd stick her in a corner and she'd you know blanch and peel you know Ten boxes of tomatoes and compass and peeled bugs and you know and sometimes do some more delicate intricate work as well. So no, no she absolutely adored it. Okay, well it's good, good, good to hear. It wasn't uh, too easy. So the opportunity was was presumably there to go straight into the family business if you needed to. But were you always very motivated to, to travel because you ended up sort of traveling fairly extensively and working in in quite a lot of places before you came back into the uh, the family business? Was that always your plan? Yeah. Now, um, so. My um, my father and uncle actually uh, said, look, if you want to get get into the business, the first thing you've got to do is learn to be a pastry chef. So I left school at 16 uh, and the advice was do pastry first rather than go into the into the kitchen and then go into pastry. It, it, it's pastry is very specific and, and, and a lot of chefs regret the fact that they don't do enough pastry work. So <clears throat> I did a pastry apprenticeship in Paris um, and. and that, that, that was that was amazing. It was it was one of you know I think most special moments in my life as apprenticeships should be um, because they are not you're not just learning a trade or a craft. You're also learning life skills. If you have a good apprenticeship chef or a mentor, which I did, I was very fortunate, and um, and that that was that was truly amazing. Um, and and then yes, then I then I went to the south of France to Lyon, worked there a couple of years, worked back in Paris again. So worked my way around France in different restaurants away from the family, um, which I think is is great. And that's the way it should be. Um, and then I traveled to Hong Kong as well and uh, worked six months in Hong Kong. Um, so, and then came back. So I, th- I think you know, I, the, the easier option may have been to work within the family, but from the get-go. But I think that actually going away, learning your trade, and then coming back, uh, you're actually enriching the family business by all the knowledge that you've acquired elsewhere, um, and you you can have a different perspective as well on the business. So it's a, I, I think it's it's you know, the way it it should it should be done and and was done in my case. If I were to 
do it again, I would probably travel even more. And I recommend all young chefs, actually, and waiters as well, front of house too, to travel the world when you're young. You know, there are there are restaurants and, and hotels all over the world. Um, and, you know, obviously, sometimes it's difficult to get work permits and visas, but with a bit of, you know, you can, it can be done. Uh, and enjoy it travel the world open open up your mind and your experiences and and if i were to do it again i I would spend more time in asia definitely Mm, yeah i was very lucky actually when i was 20 i went away for a couple of years and spent about nine months in asia not not in kitchens but just a yeah incredibly energetic vibrant sort of the chaos of humanity and uh yeah loved it and i I will certainly encourage my kids to do the same although i'll uh, i'll miss them it's hard to imagine when they're 11 although homeschooling at the moment i might encourage they go sooner rather than later but uh, they can't luckily there are no flights so um on on that pre sort of you know Le, Le Gavroche part of your journey you clearly learned a lot about the business element as well as the food element of restaurants was there somewhere specifically because they can be very different i think can't it being a being a chef or being a restaurateur was there somewhere specifically where you learned that business element and what do you think the difference is between a chef and a restaurateur yeah yeah i mean my, my dad sent me off to um, a chartered accountant actually um who was a friend to work there for I think it was about three or four months um which at the time i thought what what, what, what am i going to be doing there crunching numbers and i know not forgetting that i absolutely hated maths at school in fact i was terrible at maths but um he, he was absolutely right, as he, as he usually was, um, to send me there uh, to learn how to do the basic accounting um, and, and you know, just learning how to read a balance sheet, read a profit and loss um, account um, and, and just basic uh, business acumen, uh, which I, I, I learned over the three months, uh, which, which was fabulous, which means that, uh, you know, I can talk to an accountant. I can uh, understand the figures. Uh, it's basic, you know. I'm not a chartered, you know, um, an accountant, or, or you know. But I understand the figures, uh, and and that is important. And I think you know, all young chefs uh, and and front of house should do some kind of training in that respect, um, because we, you know, we constantly hear of chefs going you know, mad opening a business opening a restaurant and and you look at the price structure and you think hang on a minute and then you you, you see they're driving a ferrari after they've only been open six months and you think hang on a minute what's going on here uh, and you've normally forgotten about the vat bill i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then they're closed and they've gone bust and they, they, they scratch their head and, and wonder why and yeah business acumen or, or business knowledge is so important yeah, I don't think people realise how much of a chef. You know, certainly, when you get into a senior position, you know how much of it is maths, isn't it? Your your, your GP on food is really important, and all too often you see people almost, uh, I suppose, promoted beyond their skill set. Do you have? And, and lots of chefs are, are creative, and they've often come not through the sort of traditional route of education, like you say. Some of them you see either setting up their own restaurant and perhaps failing. Some of them you see going into a head chef position and it not being uh, what they expected. With your team, do, do you sort of formalise the the business? training when you take somebody under the rue wing is that part of their development um well i suppose it, it it's we, we we tend to promote from within so if you take for example rachel um who's our executive chef she started as an apprentice 
many, many moons ago. Uh, and then uh, she, well, she did her apprenticeship uh, for, and extended it, so stayed four years, <clears throat> uh, and then decided to move on, which was a good thing, and with our blessing, moved on, uh, and then came back after a few more years and said, look, you know, she, she looked me in the eye and said, chef, one day I want to be head chef here, the first female head chef of um, Le Gavroche. And uh, she, so she worked her way up to it. And so within that period, uh, yes, you, you have to learn how to uh, structure a menu, the costings, uh, the balance of the menu as well, because you know you might have some items on the menu that are really good sellers and are bringing in uh, a really good GP, uh, and other items that are not quite selling as much, but you know less of a GP. So you have to balance the the menu in that respect as well. Yeah, you know? uh, and you know we share the figures at the end of the month. We go through them and uh, uh, and and all of that. So it, it is important, and we set each other targets as well. So you know I um, I set little targets. I set them uh, in front of house as well targets. So we we work together, and we work and we know that the, what the business needs financially to survive. Mm, okay, so so it's a it's a tough sector business. It's tight margin. You know, maths is just one aspect of it. What do you think? You know, with, with all these hundreds of moving parts and, and tiny margins, what do you think the hardest aspect of of running a restaurant is in your experience? Gosh, is there a list? <laughs> yeah, where do I start? I mean, you, well, you would know, but but I think I think ultimately it's the experience of the diner. Um, it's not uh, it, 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 it it's not all about the food. Uh, and, and I think that's where a lot of chefs get it wrong. You know, they, they, they cook for their own ego almost, uh, and then they get upset if the customers don't like it. You know, you, you've, you've got to be much more open-minded than that. And you've, you've, got to, you've got to make a, a successful business because if you don't have a successful business, you won't have a restaurant, let alone a kitchen, to cook in. Um, so it's an experience. You have to look at it as... As if you were the, the customer, the guest coming into the restaurant, um, would you feel at ease? Would you would you like the welcome? Would you would you like the the tables? Every single one. I sit at every single table in the restaurant at Le Gavroche, and I still do now, even though it hasn't the layout hasn't changed. Um, but I, occasionally, I'll just sit down and I'll I'll look and I'll look at the perspective and what does the customer see sat at this table. Um, and you know that that's important. All all, all of the little things that you wouldn't think uh, are important are probably the most important things. Yeah, it's a great idea. Right? Just just sitting there because for me, so much of a restaurant is how it feels. I think it's very much the art of the restaurateur, not the science of the restaurateur. And as you were talking, then I was having flashbacks to so many conversations. I think I'm year sixteen in, in in this industry, and and the number of times I've had to sit with a chef and go, absolutely, the food is important, but it's not everything. It's the candles, it's the music, it's the welcome, it's it's even the website. You know, it's it's everything that that's involved in it. I remember having a chat with um with Michael Bremner, chef down in uh, in Brighton, and he. he uh, set up his own restaurant and and again you know it was in his head it was all about the food to the to the extreme where he forgot to put a bar in and it wasn't until they opened that he realized that he'd so focused on the food he'd, he'd actually had to retrofit a bar so there was somewhere to actually pour the wine and, and the drinks so oh, yeah. chefs can take it to extreme sometimes oh yeah so um, my restaurant manager is uh, is French. He's uh, his name is Olivier. He's worked with me for over ten years. I think he's he's fifty years old. He's lived in England for 
30 years, so longer in England than he's lived in France. Mm. He is the most French-sounding human being that I know. I, I, I can almost not understand him. How do you manage to be so French and so English at the same time? Where, where it's a pretty lucky phenomenon that you've got, I think, in your trade. Or maybe not luck. Did you work on that? <laughs> no, well, well I, was, I was born here. My father and mother arrived in England in um, 1958. <clears throat> Um, so yeah, I, I was born here. My, my first language as a child was was definitely French because my parents were still learning English, uh, and, and so that yeah, very very French. In fact, my my first school uh, in Kent, uh, I, I struggled uh, as as a very very young uh, child because uh, my English was awful and and I could barely speak a word. Um, but then following that, all my schooling was um, in English school. Uh, so obviously I, I spoke you know, perfect English and with a, a slight South London accent. <laughs> and so it, it, it is different. Whereas my, my cousin, Alain, still has a very strong French accent um, because he went to the French lycée uh, and uh, then went to France as well as a, as a young teenager. Um, but uh, no, I, I am fluent in French and in English. Yeah. Well, it always amazes me that, that, that most French people you speak to have such a strong accent, e- even after so many years. But but next time I'm uh, Olivier is having a rant at me and I start to look a little bit blank because I lose track of what he's saying, I'm going to say, look, Michel can do it. Come on, Olivier, we can we can do this. But I, I think he's probably given up after after 30 years. So, yeah, um, there's there's also a little bit of a charm there as well, isn't there? Really? He could sell, you know, Ice to Eskimos. He sounds beautiful, I think. You know, like he's, he's, he's by far the best person to go out and sell a lovely bottle of red to a to a a table of ladies it doesn't matter what he says they just say yes thank you <laughs> so he's perfect um you took over Le Gavroche back in in 1991 but you were there earlier than that I, I was kind of imagining maybe the frustration of you sort of sitting on your hands or, or biting your lip and, and was it sort of you know were you desperate to get involved uh, and make some changes because you could see what you wanted to do and and I suppose you know do you remember that first night on the past, was was there a sort of a, a life event change where all of a sudden it was your name above the door rather than your dad's, or actually did it did it feel much more transitionary and, and less of a life event than that? Yeah, I mean it was more of a transition because I, I was back at the restaurant uh, back at Le Gavroche. Uh, I think it was in eighty eight, uh, may have been actually it may, might have even been eighty seven, um, and officially took over in ninety one. But um, yeah, I mean for those three or four years before 91 um yeah dad dad was just popping in every now and then just you know he wasn't really running the restaurant at all so it, it was already my kind of well yeah you know, I, I was that was the, uh, the, the the head chef um but doing my father's cooking and uh, and gosh, yeah, it, it, there were certain things which were really annoying me, and and, and, I, and we used to bicker, and uh, he, he used to yeah give me earfuls, and I used to give him earfuls back, and uh, you know, it was it was fraught at times, but it was um, it was all good uh, because uh, whether whether it was you know, his dish or my dish, it was. We agreed that they were both very, very good, except his were better. <laughs> <laughs> was there ever a specific dish that you remember that you were like, my goodness, I battled for that for months and still didn't win? Or? Uh, no, there, there, there were some which I just hated and want, on the, on his menu and I wanted them off. Uh, <laughs> and he said, oh, this one will not come off. We want this one. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, it, 
at, at, at the end at the end of the day if, if my old man annoyed me too much i'd just you know slip a little bit of coriander in his food and he would really get wound up that was the technique oh yeah yeah yeah. if he really annoyed me i'd, I'd slip coriander in something uh, <laughs> how dare you put coriander on the menu how, you know i hate it i said well yeah but i love it <laughs> 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 oh, I can imagine. I can imagine the battles. So, um, not not just the sort of the, there was a, a you know a transform not not a transformation a transition like you say over the time mm. from his style of cooking to yours. But actually, if you look back over the last thirty years, I guess the whole cooking you know sort of sector in, in the country has changed. But if you look at Le Gavroche specifically, again, has it just been a sort of slow evolution, or if you look back over that period, are there sort of are there a few sort of key pivotal points where there were some some bigger changes? Yeah, I think no, it, it's been you know. A smooth and, and you know sort of gentle transition and um, you know let's not forget I am you know very still very French even though I don't sound it um, and <laughs> I, I was brought up on the great French classics and I was taught the great French classic techniques um, and that's what I, I love and um, so that's where that for me that's comfort that, that's comfort food and that's what I like to you know love to eat and I think it's great food french food with with great wines is just is just perfect so you know that will always be um what is served at le gavroche so over the years yes it's got lighter so we don't use as much heavy sort of heavy sauces thickened sauces um there are more emphasis on emulsions um slightly different cooking techniques as well although i'm not a huge fan of vacuum pack sous vide cooking um, so there, there, you know, there are lots of ways that we have kind of evolved, but, but that's normal. And then if you, you know, if Emily was in this conversation, she would say, well, dad, you know, your cooking style is, is really old fashioned. And as for granddad's, it was, you know, dinosaur. Um, so, but she is also very French and loves the classics, loves butter and cream and such like, but she has got the next generation's sort of, uh, style so it's recognizable as rue it's recognizable as gavroche uh, recognizable as french classic um but it's just evolved slightly you know just just to today's palette which which is normal mm. does um does emily have a, a coriander equivalent that she can put in your dish if you yeah. get really irritating michelle yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're not going to admit it because she doesn't know yet. I've not told her, but no, she loves Coriander too, actually. Loves Coriander. Oh, really? Okay. Um, The whole sort of Michelin star thing, and you know, your family, incredible reputation for the standards that you've maintained. Do do you find that constrictive sometimes in perhaps wanting to be more experimental? And do you constantly have to, you know, if you're coming up with new dishes, do you sort of have to consider its impact? on stars or actually is a good dish that you and the customers love also good enough for, for Michelin? I, I, I think if it's good enough for your guests, then it should be good enough for uh, any guide, you know, Michelin guide, good food guide or, or, you know, or food bloggers or whatever. So, you know, if your customers come back time and time again and reorder that same dish because they love it, then it should be good enough for, you know, to, to make your mark. Um, and, and, you know, that's, I, th- I think that's what you should go by. You should never cook for stars. You should never cook for the Michelin guide or any guide. You know, you, you should cook for your customers and cook for, for, for your pleasure as well. Um, and, and, and if you get it, if you do that, then you'll get it right and you'll get the plaudits afterwards. That's the way I see it. 
Mm. It's been interesting. It seems to have been less so maybe in the last few years, but certainly 10 years ago, I found it really difficult to recruit any chef that didn't have sort of grand ambitions and, and, and want external accreditation and, and some really challenging conversations at times to say, look, first and foremost, I have to sell you know, what the customer enjoys and, and what they want. And we have to be a viable business. And I'd often say, look, you need the specials menu is where you can play and have as much fun as you want. But yeah. fundamentally, I've still got to have a, a steak and a salad on the menu. How, how, do you, how have you, you know, managed or how should people manage the ego, I suppose, of, of chefs and find that balance? As we said before, I suppose, the art of the restaurateur and the difference between a chef. Yeah, that, that, is, that is somehow challenging. Um, uh, but but you're, you're absolutely right. And you mentioned you know, the, the daily specials, and, um, and that is something that we, uh, we do use. And so the, the a la carte is, is sacrosanct. You know, I, I will have 100% input on that. Um, and there are certain dishes which I don't want to change. And I do feel that they have to be there. They're, they're almost like the pillars or the foundations. Um, but then the specials, yes, you can you can have a bit of fun with that. And, and that's where your, your head chef can can maybe show off a little bit and, and you know, and you discuss them with, a, with, with your chef and then you try them and trial them maybe um, and gauge the response. Uh, and then maybe tweak it, and then ultimately that can maybe then go on to the full a la carte, which is you know which should be the the holy grail for your head chef. And say, wow, look, I've actually managed to get one of my dishes onto the the a la carte, which is uh, you know that that that's the way I I, I think it should work anyway. Mm, perfect. Okay. Well, that that was always my sort of get out of jail card, uh, so to speak. Um, you every time I see you interviewed, you know, we're obviously very lucky we get to see you on the on the TV, and uh, you just come across as a really genuinely nice guy. Generally, got a big smile on your face, you know, a little glint in your eye. You seem like a very happy chap. Yet you've come through an era of sort of kitchen culture. I think of you know the the, the Ramses and maybe the Marcos, and this this general perception of kitchens being quite hot headed and being mm. uh, quite angry. I actually phoned. Steve, Steve Groves, who I know because he used to live in Bournemouth, one of your chefs yesterday, since I thought, I'm going to just find out, you know, is it true? Is Michel genuinely a nice guy or actually, you know, when the cameras are off, is he, is he, is he an angry man? And he couldn't have been more complimentary about you. He said you were genuinely a really decent guy, which was quite a relief for me because I didn't want to be sworn at for an hour. What's your experience of, of you know, that era, I suppose, of, of kitchen cultures? Have, have you changed? Did you witness the sort of culture that we have a bad reputation for? And do you think it is finally changing? Well, first off, I think I've got, I should return the compliment to Steve Groves. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do that. It'll get big-headed. <laughs> no, Steve is an amazing chef, an immensely talented uh, young man. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's special. He, he really is special. Very, very level-headed as well. He's um, super calm, isn't he? Ice cool. Absolutely. God, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I always look... Uh, and try and find positives, uh, and, and that's that's so important. Uh, and that's not just in the kitchen; it's it's in you know, in life in general. It, it it's not easy. Kitchens can get you know, very very hot and and you know like pressure cookers. Um, do I ever lose my my rag? Do I ever swear? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> and, um, uh, and and but it's important to lose your rag at the right time. And and to not dwell on it. Um, if something goes wrong, then you have to find out why it went wrong. I tend to blame myself if I if I shout and scream, and and, and if something goes wrong, I blame myself because I think, well, hang on, why why did that go wrong? 
I should have been in total control and, and or I should have shown this person what to do or, you know, I, I, I take the blame and it annoys me immensely. But I also find that if, if the kitchen is shouting and screaming and, you know, there's less control and, and if you lose control, then, you know, ultimately the, the food is not going to be right. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it is difficult and, and they are, kitchens are a, you know, sort of a pressurized atmosphere because everybody is fighting for, per, for perfection and to get everything right. And timing is, is so essential too. So when you've got a brigade of chefs and they're all trying to get everything together for one specific time, it's it's not easy. It really isn't easy. But I, you know, I, I I went through yes a shouty time I suppose when Gordon was in the kitchen as well with me at Gavroche and yeah you know, there was there was definitely a lot more shouting and swearing you know thirty years ago, but we we've moved on from there and and, and I think that's you know for the better. Yeah, <laughs> an amusing uh, thought. So imagining you two in the kitchen, you just seem so different. I can't imagine you sort of yeah, calmly putting him down. <laughs> him yeah. having a uh, I mean, Gordon, thirty years well, yeah, thirty years ago, was uh, a a shouty. Well, yeah, a shouty chef and swearing every other word was swearing. I mean, he's always been like that. Um, but um, yeah, 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 he used to just say, "All right, that's it. Calm down. Service. Let's get on with it." Uh, and, and he would, you know, for me, Gordon, yeah. Gordon is one of the most talented, in fact, the most talented chef, naturally talented chef I've seen at Gavroche, for sure, you know, bar none, uh, unbelievable natural talent, um, but uh, fiery, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> they, they certainly don't seem to use the bleeper machine uh, oh, on no. the telly with you as much as uh, as much as they need to use it with Gordon, Michelle. Um, you, you mentioned then sort of that that sort of stress of the kitchen, I suppose. And and, and when you think about, you know, the, the, I, I think it's phenomenal. I heard you chatting in another interview about, you know, sort of people who've not worked in kitchens and actually when they come in and they observe how it works and the different sections and, and, and you know, everybody's called chef and everybody's talking to each other. And there's an amazing energy and buzz and vibe and, and do you still get to do a sort of you know a busy stressy night or a saturday night on the pass or and, and or and if not you know do you do you miss that uh, energy or do you just every now and again almost have to go and have your fix i suppose and go right i've got to do this again because i, I really want to feel that energy sort of surging through my veins yeah no, i'm at the restaurant most days lunch and dinner um which the, the our guests are always uh, always you know, taken aback when they see me. They go, you here on a Saturday night? Thought you'd have your feet up. I said, well, you know, it's my name on the door and I actually do enjoy com- coming in and being there. Um, I don't cook at the stove anymore. I do the odd occasion. Um, you know, I'll cook the odd cheese souffle, the odd souffle suissesse, and I'll, I'll do a little bit here and there. Um, uh, but but no, I'm, I'm not behind the stoves. And I, I quite honestly... I do a little bit on the pass, but not that much. But I, I'm actually on the pass, but on the waiter side, and I'm helping them, and I'm measuring times um, and keeping an eye out on the quality and having a little taste and putting my finger in the sauce, metaphorically. Um, you know, so I'm there. Uh, and um, I, I just enjoy it. I, I enjoy the buzz, the atmosphere, the watching all the young chefs, you know, working their backsides off to get 
you know, to, to, to just to just to deliver the food beautifully, and and it, it's just it's just wonderful. I, I I just thoroughly enjoy it and enjoy the the buzz, the atmosphere, the the beautiful produce, the end product, um, and then going out and meeting and greeting all all the guests and having a quick chat with everybody and wishing wishing them happy birthday or you know you know it's 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 just that that experience um and and you know i think we we talk about experiences of, of a diner um but you have to make that experience and you have to make you know, you know that memory for the diner it's as i said earlier it's not just the plate of food yes that can be memorable but you know that memory is just taste and visual but uh, you know the experience is more in the soul um and and it's a, it's an aura that's in the restaurant and that that's created by the front of house and the kitchen as well and, and the boss you know it's simple mm. <laughs> yeah i don't know if it's simple but it's beautiful when it works and, and like i said it's back to that feeling isn't it and you just you just know the, the music is the right level the, the background chat is the right level it just feels good but you mentioned then that sort of i suppose the contradiction between you know the, the pros and the cons so you know saturday night being at work I, I know i've heard you talk before about you know the sacrifices you had to make you know from a family perspective we're very much aware if we work in this sector it's, it's almost like a drug you know we love it but hate it you know almost, almost an equal measure because sometimes the the, the sort of balance that it uh, forces us to make what was your thoughts as it, as it became clear that you know emily wanted to get into the restaurant world as a dad was your gut preference that perhaps she would have a better quality of life exploring something else or were you all, always sort of very encouraging and saying no go for it um well we certainly didn't push emily into you know into the industry uh, but at a very very young age she wanted to to be a chef and said that um, and <clears throat> my, my wife tried to dissuade her and, and she worked in the industry as well, my wife, and uh, still does. Um, but, um, you know, said to her, look, you, know, you also love art and photography. Maybe you could become a photographer and specialize in food photography, you know, or, or there's food journalism, you know, there's, there's lots, lots of other things, or maybe front of house as opposed to in the kitchen. And uh, um, But no, 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 she was adamant. And, and she was, no, that is what I want to do. And that is what I'm going to do uh, when I, you know, she, she, and she repeated it and said, you know, this is my decision. And um, I want to go to hotel catering school and I want to uh, qualify as a chef and I want to work in kitchens. And you know, she is... Um, She's a a very stubborn young lady, and she knows what she wants, and um, and that's good. That's very very good. Mm. Does, it, does it make you feel proud now that she's doing it? Oh, good lord, yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, um, proud, but but very. Gosh, it, it, it was difficult because there, there were times. Um, I remember when we were going to visit her when she was <clears throat> working in Monaco or working um, uh, in Paris, and uh, she'd look absolutely knackered. You know black arm black sort of around the eyes and burns up and down her arm uh, no nails um and i think oh my god what have i done to my poor daughter um but when you when you'd speak to her and she'd talk about what she was cooking that day and uh what she what she'd cooked and uh you know what she'd learned uh and and all of that and you think wow you know this, this is amazing um, that that she's one hundred percent immersed uh, in being a chef, and and then she got headhunted as well for for another restaurant, and um, 
and I, and I think, wow, look at that. You know, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Somebody in another restaurant has offered her a job, uh, you know, and obviously knows and knows about her. And that's great. That's fantastic. You know, very, very proud. Yeah, you can't see the grin on my face, but with an 11-year-old daughter and sort of wondering what she's going to do in the future, it's, uh, yeah, I can imagine how exciting that must be. Do you get invited over to, uh, Susie, Susie now opened her own restaurant, do you get invited for lunch? And are you very conscious of, uh, I suppose, are you allowed to make comment? It's like walking on eggshells. My daughter loves baking and trying to give her some feedback is incredibly challenging. Uh, you had that experience with your dad. Do you try and manage it in, in a very different way? Are you allowed to pass comment or do you just keep your mouth shut and enjoy your lunch? Uh, well, to, to be honest, I've, I've always enjoyed lunch at, uh, at her restaurant and, and Diego as well. Her husband is an amazing chef. I mean, absolutely, you know, so talented. It's unbelievable. Um, so they make a great, a great team. Um, yeah, I've never had any cause to, to complain or pass comment. It's just exceptional. Uh, and I feel feel immensely proud when I go and eat there and I taste their food and, and see their restaurant because it's it really is uh, it, it's it's a wonderful wonderful place and um, they, they were doing so well until this bloody pandemic arrived. Yeah, incredibly tough time. We're going to come on to that very shortly, actually, and about how to navigate through this. But um, just quickly, so one of the motivations for me setting up this podcast, funny enough, was actually France. I, I, I drove through the night once to go and do some cycling in the mountains, and I got to a little village, Bourg de Son, uh, at the base of the mountains, and I, uh, we'd driven all night. We went into this little boulangerie and ordered an espresso and a croissant. It was about 7.30 in the morning and ordered another coffee, and I looked out over the square, and there was probably four or five other boulangeries, and there was this amazing uh, you know, sort of culinary atmosphere, I suppose, and the French coming in and chatting and, and buying their French bread, and it was beautiful to see. And all I could think about was, you know, why at home were people people you know probably popping into a bp garage and pressing a button on a costa machine and getting their coffee and buying a backpacked patisserie or we couldn't even call it that you know some some bit of slime um and it, and it was frustrating so i wanted people to understand sort of you know the work and the energy i guess that goes in behind the scenes and, and hopefully get them to to choose differently am i right in saying i it never feels like when i'm traveling around europe it never feels like they have that same thing they don't have those sort of chains of, of, of casual restaurants in the same way that we do here is that fair or am i just not am i just not seeing them or is it is it very different yeah you, you're probably not seeing them the, the, there has been an onslaught um in in france of the uh the chains and the, the fast food chains um and um much to to my chagrin anyway i think it's i think it's terrible but um yeah it is say that yeah, it is bad. It, it, it is although saying that, I must say that in, the, in recent years, I would say in the last sort of five to ten years, there's been an onslaught of these sort of chain restaurants, fast food outlets. But there's also been a renaissance in um, bakers, so small boulangers, who are fighting back uh, and and are doing the traditional. Uh, baguette and the traditional sourdough of, of yesteryear and great croissants cooked almost to order um, and that that is really really nice also cheesemongers as well um, and uh, the you know all, all of all of the, the little shops that we kind of associate or used to associate with little villages in France um, that sadly went went bust uh, with the onslaught of these um, you know mega supermarkets that have sprung up everywhere but they're now fighting back 
Uh, so, so that that's that's really nice. I mean, it, where I live in France, is, there's quite a few examples of that, uh, which, which is great. Mm, that's good. We've actually got a couple of local bakeries and even a cheese shop open near me, and it's beautiful to see. And actually, the you know the pandemic has been a blessing for them because all of a sudden people are staying out of the supermarkets and supporting them. So it is good. I, I interviewed Guy from Riverford Organics um, a, a few months ago, and I think he made a good point that it was almost like you know things are getting better and worse at the same time and we, we just get further apart has anybody ever turned up with a sort of a, a very big bucket of cash and said michelle rue you know can we put your name above the door of our a hundred restaurants across the uk <laughs> uh, a rollout of le gavroche <laughs> well maybe under a slightly different name yeah well, well le gavroche is definitely not a rollout, no. uh, and that, yes i have been tempted to open a Le Gavroche in, in various other places, uh, well, all over the world, actually, and, and there's been a lot of money on offer. Uh, but I've always declined. Um, Le Gavroche will remain unique um, and, and will remain you know, the one and only. Um, other other Rue restaurants, yeah, of course, definitely. Um, but it, it will not be Le Gavroche. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that I think is, is important. And that's what makes Le Gavroche special. Um, and, and makes it iconic and a worldwide known uh, brand. So that's, that's important. Yeah. So the other thing we've seen a big sort of growth off in the UK, and, and I think it's quite interesting and, and quite often a sort of a, a cheaper way, as the big brands have started to dominate and every high street looks the same, it's become prohibitively expensive, I guess, for people to get in and, and open independent restaurants. So there's been this huge sort of growth in street food and people getting carts and, uh, you know, thinking of the various markets up in London. Is, is that the same in in France? Is, is there a sort of a similar growth in, in street food or has it remained more traditional? No, very much street food. Um, they, they've cottoned on, cottoned on to this um, and um, uh, come, come a little late to the party, but uh, they've, they've definitely embraced it. Um, there, are, there are great uh, street food areas and markets that have food markets. Food, I would say food markets. France have always, always had food markets, but um, by that I mean uh, like street food markets. So trucks... Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, selling food from different regions and different parts of the world, uh, very eclectic, uh, and but yeah, and the places where people come to congregate. Although now, it, now it's difficult, but and and there are things like um, what's it called, Box Park, uh, or in Brixton, uh, there's you know containers, old containers that have been made into. Uh, small bars and restaurants so there's lots of those that have popped up in france and uh, especially in the suburbs and uh, of lyon uh, and marseille so that that has taken off and uh, that, that's that's really cool i like that yeah that's no, been exciting i think to see some of the food that's that's come out of it even mark hicks uh, through this process you know he lost his restaurants and ended up uh, back in a food truck on the south coast could you see a, a michel rue food truck in your semi-retirement years uh, michel or yeah, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some I would love to see that. If you drove down my street, I'd be I'd be running down the road. <laughs> Something based on maybe the uh, the croque monsieur, but you know, with all kinds of different fillings and different ways of cooking them. You know, but, but use the croque monsieur as a as a vehicle. You know. Have you? Yeah. Talking of which, have you seen Sat Baines has launched Mama Baines? Um, really? No, I've not seen that. Oh my! And so he's got his little food truck as well. Uh, so, really? uh, but he also does delivery service of. Um, his mum's uh, great curries and samosas. I, uh, 
I had a delivery of of that, and that is absolutely mind blowingly good. So, you know, it, it's you know even a mission star chef can have a food truck and uh but but different because it's indian it's brilliant yeah i love that somebody said to me the other day it's like you know when the ice cream vans used to come down your road and, and ring the bell why doesn't somebody have a, a food truck that comes down your street at lunchtime especially at the moment when everybody's yeah. working from home and literally yeah it rings a little siren and everybody piles out and buys their lunch so if anybody's uh listening and has got time for a new business idea i'd, I'd love to see yeah knowing a few trucks were coming down your street on a regular basis be fantastic <laughs> particularly if you or sat was in them to be fair but, yeah. so. I want to touch a little bit on on our sort of responsibilities as restaurateurs. I always think that you know if I get on a plane, I expect the uh, the pilot to know you know hell of a lot about how to fly a plane, and and I don't need to know that. And I sort of feel the same in in restaurants and in food and drink. And I, f- I feel this sort of sense of responsibility, but it's tricky because at the end of the day, we need to run restaurants where, where people buy produce and we make a profit. But I also feel that we should be helping educate people around food and drink, and, and by which I mean, you know, where where it comes from and, and the impact that it's having on the planet, but also the impact it's having on our bodies. You know, that, that we've clearly got one of the biggest obesity problems in the world. I didn't go into my career to make people unhealthy or to, mm. or to make people fatter how do you feel we you know what do you feel our level of responsibility is 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 it down to us as restaurateurs to sort of hold people's hands and take them on the journey and say look this is the impact of what you're buying on the planet's health and on your own health that's a difficult question because you know people go to restaurants to fill their tummies but also to you know to enjoy the experience and and have a good time um if, if, if we start saying to them well you can't have that dessert, well, you can't have that starter, that main and that dessert because you're going to be consuming X amount of calories and far too much fat for your health, um, then that's just wrong. Um, so I, I think we have a responsibility as, as chefs to source our produce. And, and, and when I say chefs, I mean, I mean restaurateurs or, or, or chefs of any restaurant, not, not Michelin star or anything. You know, as soon as you are a chef, you, you have your responsibility to purchase the best produce and to know where that produce comes from and the impact of that produce. Uh, so if it's possible to, to buy locally, if it's possible to buy green, if it's possible, you know, all, all of that and, and sustainable as well. So, so that, that is, that's the personal responsibility. I don't think that we should be uh, Im- imposed upon uh, to uh, do calorie counting, uh, and and to you know put lists of where uh, all the food comes from and such like I I, I don't think that's right. It feels like the government often get the sort of the wrong idea, don't they? You know, specifically around calories on menus, I suppose. You know, the, the, mm. it feels like everything just ends up being you know centrally made in a factory. If every single ingredient and every process has got to be you know the same every single time, the, the complexity of having a specials board and working out the n- nutrition information and the calories on on a special that the chef might have tasted and tweaked a little bit just before service because it needed a little bit of love. Yeah. You know, are, are you concerned that if the government start to overregulate, that it will almost be impossible to, to be our trade and do they perhaps just not understand how a proper restaurant could work because it feels like the wrong solution we should be eating whole food fresh food food that's made by real humans not by robots no oh, in, indeed and that that's where i think if, if we can get a minister for hospitality uh, that would help uh, and that minister has to have uh, a, a proper understanding of how the industry works um because yeah we, we would just would not be able to calorie count and, and measure all of our food 
in, in a busy restaurant like ours, uh, that, that would just not work. And, and it just goes against the whole ethos of hospitality and eating out in a restaurant. It, you know, it's about indulgence and about enjoyment. Um, and you don't want to feel guilty if you're ordering a chocolate mousse and it's you know a couple of hundred calories more than you should have. No, mm. you're not going to be eating that chocolate mousse every day. You're going there because you want to indulge. Uh, and and, and you know, that's that's so important, I think. Oh my goodness, your your cheese souffle, Michelle, which I know you've probably had enough of over the years. But just I did some research in the last couple of days before we had a chat, and the number of times I heard you, I think I even heard you cooking it live once, describing it. And oh my goodness, I was salivating. But yeah, it sounds like a week's worth of calories, but it sounds absolutely delicious. So yeah, we don't we don't want to stop people eating those occasionally, do we? Well, exactly. That that's just the thing. You're not going to be eating one of those souffles we set, you know, every day of the week. It, it's a it's a treat. Uh, and and we can't take that away from you know from eating out and it's enjoyment. Yeah. So so the, so the challenge then I absolutely agree on the sustainability angle. I think that is our responsibility. I think there's a challenges around getting people to understand you know where food comes from and to be willing to pay a little bit more. But this 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 problem that we've got as an obese nation and maybe our relationship with food, we, we don't we are certainly our perception is that that it's different in the Mediterranean. You know, you hear about the Mediterranean diet. We look at perhaps the sort of the family social occasion around food. You know, maybe long lunches. Our, our perception is certainly that Europeans have a different relationship with food. Do you think that's uh, true or false? And and is it a case of you know how do how do we resolve this in the UK? Do we need to go back to schools? You know, this is is this a cultural issue? And what's the answer? Because ignoring it clearly means we're on the same trajectory. As, as the USA. Absolutely. Well, knowledge is key for me. Uh, so, you know, knowledge about food, what it does to your body, what you need as well, um, and, and, and how to cook. Uh, but, but when I say how to cook, I mean just the basics, the, the very, very basics. And that for me is key. Knowledge is key. And, and so we should be teaching our children uh, the basics uh, at a very, very young age. Uh, where our food comes from, calories, what are they, how, how different calories are, because there are so many different kinds of calories, um, and uh, and then how to cook. Uh, basic cooking, just, just very, very simple. Just give them, you know, teach them 10 basic recipes, uh, and, and that's food for life. Yeah. So have you seen any good examples? I had Naomi Duncan from Chefs in Schools on, on the podcast a few weeks ago, chatting about them trying to get sort of, you know, proper food, not, not even necessarily proper chefs, because quite often schools have got chefs and they want to, you know, they don't want to open a packet and heat it up. We just want them to use, you know, real whole foods. In your journey, have you seen any sort of transformational approaches or places where we can go and go, look, there's a really good template. Let's pick that up. Because it seems that, you know, Jamie's obviously looked into this, you know, the, the government, I know Henry Dimbleby's now looking at the sort of, you know, the, the, the country's food sourcing and culture a little bit. It's this eternal problem. Have you seen anything where you go, yes, that's a great approach that might help? Oh, gosh, I mean, that, that's difficult. And, and of course, uh, school lunches at the moment is, uh, is a bit of a hot potato, isn't it? But um, I, I mean, I, I remember uh, visiting the French Lycée here in London uh, twice the canteen, um, and and although it's it's well, there are fees, so it's a fee paying, but it is uh, state subsidised. So um, the canteen there, the food was was prepared uh, fresh every day by chefs, um, and and the food there was uh, was really good. It was wholesome, 
wholesome food for the children. Um, nothing, I mean, it wasn't expensive and it, it wasn't fancy, but it was just good, fresh food. There was always fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, salads, um, cold meats, uh, and then there was a, always a hot dish, including a vegetarian dish with fresh vegetables. Um, and uh, a cheese, very French, isn't it? There's always got to be cheese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it looks like who's reward for lunch at school. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> and um, and uh, fruit again, and a sweet, but it was never a very very sickly, horrible sweet. And there were never never any any confectionery, no no confectionery or sweet drinks. Um, and and I think you know that that's important. Uh, and, and I think nowadays too many. Uh, children uh, have, have, you know, just just grab what there is. So you know, a bag of crisps, some overly sweet confectionery, uh, and that makes part of their lunch. Uh, fizzy drinks, uh, whatever, and, and you know, that's where I, I think knowledge is key. That that we, if we can get into the minds uh, of these children at the youngest possible age of what they are putting into their tummies uh, and how it will affect them, uh, then, you know, that, that's important. And, and, and get them to really enjoy it. I mean, you know, my, my dad was, was uh, up until quite recently, going into schools uh, with Adopt-A-School, the charity, uh, and teaching kids about different tastes, tasting, you know, f- different fruit, different vegetables, uh, and and how good they are, and uh, you know, and doing just very 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 simple cooking lessons, how to cook an omelette, and what you can put in an omelette, uh, and then there would be a further lesson of you know the calories and everything to go with that. But it, you know, I think that's that's key, definitely. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. Uh, we did a, a project recently with a school, and the, and the teacher said, look, it was the most engaged they'd seen the kids. You know, they had to come in and, and come up with some dishes and do some baking and, and show us something a little bit sort of uh, Bake Off style. Uh, so, so you know, the kids like it. The, 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 clearly, the demand and the need is there. They're much more excited than when a, when a, a restaurateur or a chef comes in than probably when a, an accountant or a state agent comes in. I guess it's a case of of getting it recognised, you know, on the on the national curriculum and, and starting early. And I don't know why it's taken so long, but mm. we haven't got time to fix that today michelle but talking of that impact on on the planet and the sustainability side i suppose of what we purchase do you tend to focus on you know things like organic or, or marine stewardship council that sort of external accreditation or do you think that buying sustainably is more nuanced than that um gosh i think yeah, to, to be fair i'm gonna sit on the fence on that one. I, th- I think <laughs> i think it's a bit of both um you know, we have a we have a personal responsibility, and that's very important. Um, but also, you need we, you know we need help um, by following these guidelines and following um, the uh, the accreditations, uh, and that that's very important too. Um, I, I I find that working with smaller uh, suppliers as well is is often the easier way to get directly to the producer. So if, you know, the smaller the supplier, the the quicker you will get to the uh, uh, connection with the actual grower, or with the actual farmer, or with the actual fisherman, uh, and that mm. you know that's key as well. 
Yeah, that's only been my experience. I think if you if you can look your supplier in the eye and uh, you know and, and and shake their hand uh, and trust what they say, then I think yeah, quite often you know the complexities of, of it, so especially for sometimes the external sort of accreditation, be quite an expensive process with a few hoops to jump through, and it and it doesn't apply to some of the smaller suppliers. But yeah, I think you know being able to look people in the eye is is important. Mm. I'm conscious of time, but I just want to touch on the on the pandemic and obviously you know incredibly uh, tough times. How's how are you coping? sort of professionally uh, personally with the pandemic what's the impact been um, the, the sort of closure at Rue at Parliament Square was that the pandemic's fault how's it going your end yeah Rue at Parliament Square well I mean it, it's it's very very difficult and, and hard to swallow but um, uh, the, the 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 business structure at Rue at Parliament Square was um, the restaurant one side uh, 40 40 cover um, which you know in, in good years would would break even and we were happy with that um but obviously with what with the pandemic that that sort of really did hurt but what hurt the most was the uh, event side of that business because um there was also an event side where you know we would do weddings and big receptions of a hundred or so people sat down and that 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 was where the the money was made and that's where the profit came um and there's been no events last year at all um, and we can't see events coming back online this year not until maybe the end of the year um, so unfortunately we had to you know take the decision to to cut our losses there and um, uh, and, and close Parliament Square ruin Parliament Square um, which is, which is incredibly sad because as I mentioned earlier Steve Groves is an incredibly talented chef and um, uh, well I mean we're we're keeping Steve busy and we've, we've got work for him and I'm still going to be working with Steve, which is great. Uh, and some of the sous chefs as well, we've managed to, to get jobs for them and uh, front of house too, but it, but it, it is incredibly difficult. Um, but Gavroche, well, yeah, it, it, it's tough. It, it really is. Lockdown one was, was just manic, crazy. Um, lockdown two, we knew, we knew what to expect. And, and this latest one, um, we, I think that the problem with this one is that we don't know when we're going to get out of it. And, and, and yeah, I've, I've done uh, a lot of virtual cook-along, um, which, which is good. It keeps me busy. Um, and, it, and it's a little bit of income coming into the business because we need a trickle of income. We need something uh, because there are so many fixed costs and outgoings uh, that, that, you know, that have to be paid. Um, and, uh, and then we, we dabbled in the delivery of food boxes, which uh, was an incredible amount of work. I mean, a, a truly uh, huge amount of work for next to nothing uh, return. Um, so, you know, people who say, well, just do takeaway. Uh, it's not that easy. It's not that simple. Uh, it, it can and can't. You know, it can work. Yes, but it doesn't pay the bills. Not entirely anyway. Uh, so no. this, there's lots. I've, I've launched an e-shop. Now that's that's been really good. That's that's saved a couple of um, jobs, uh, which, which is great. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, and then we're looking to do maybe something for Valentine's coming up um, in uh, in uh, in a month's time or so. So doing something special through the e-shop. So maybe food related, champagne related. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are things that you can do to to try and just at least get a trickle of money coming into the businesses. 
Mm. Yeah, we very much share that experience. We did we did more in the first sort of lockdown, but the, the the lack of viability of some of the stuff, you know, we were doing drive through food collections, deliveries, uh, very much this time, you know, more about battening down the hatches. I think certain restaurants and certain styles of food probably lend themselves to delivery easier, but it is, uh, yeah, really, really tough, but still wanting to stay relevant, saying we're going to do something for, for Valentine's night. We won't make any money out of it, but it gives the team a, a project to focus on, and hopefully it just keeps us in, in the mind eye of the customers. But yeah. it, it's heartbreaking. Sorry. Yeah, that's important too. It's, it's just to keep it out there, to, to keep ticking over um, and to keep your staff motivated and feel as if they are still relevant and useful. Uh, and that's so important because, you know, uh, I, I really do fear for, um, you know, mental health as well because sat at home doing nothing it is soul destroying. It really, really is. So you've got to keep motivated and you've got to keep doing something. Mm. Where do you think the sort of impact of this, you know, I'm still not sure the government gets it and we'll come on to it, maybe support, but it's been pretty heartbreaking to see just the number of restaurants that appear to be, you know, closing for good, not just the pandemic. What's your experience of of the level of pain out there in the industry? And how do you see this playing out? Do you think it's the big guys, you know, with the shareholders that are going to get through? Or do you think it's the more nimble independents? Where's your sort of mm. level of fear as to how many people perhaps aren't going to come out of this? And who's it going to be? I, I, I think, well, we've lost many. Um, and there's a lot more that sadly will will go under. Um, I, th- I think you're, you're absolutely right in saying that the smaller independent and nimble ones could survive a bit longer. But then again, it all depends on landlords. Um, if you've got a really good landlord who's uh, understanding then and, and your restaurant is in an area maybe in the suburbs, then, then you know, where, where rents are slightly less, uh, then you've got more of a chance of, of survival. Um, and then you've got the... the the big guys, uh, and we know who they are, the, the big guys with the big shareholding and, and big, deep pockets, um, they will survive. Uh, and, and then you've got the, uh, the sharks that are out there that are, are lapping up and already starting to buy up places and buy up businesses um, uh, because they're, they're, there's, there's businesses that are going bust and that are going for a song. Um, so some people will make money out of this um, and others will be... Uh, forever in debt uh, and that, that's so sad so sad mm, and it's not yeah. restaurants let's not just say you know it, this is the hospitality industry as a whole so it's all our suppliers as well and they are on their knees they, they you know this is this oh, it, it is awful it's an awful mm. awful time um that, that we're all going through mm. You're right. It is genuinely the heartbreaking to hear some of the stories. So, if if you uh, were sat in a meeting with with Boris and Rishi, uh, what would you be telling them? What would you be asking them for? What sort of help do you think we need, not just for your business, but but for the sort of the wider sector to help us bounce back out of this as soon as possible? Um, well, VAT to remain at five percent um, for um, at least twenty twenty one. Business rates again for the whole of the year. Um, to, to that, that, that would be an, an immense help. I would also look at the furlough as well because it's all good and proper paying furlough, but the businesses have to pay for pensions uh, and other taxes um, when we're not actually employing. These, these people are not working. So it, it might seem trivial and small, but it does add up. 
So I, I really don't understand why the businesses have to pay on top of that. Um, and that's just not right. Um, the grants, uh, the grants are not even not even touching the sides. Uh, you know, I I think we we have to be very careful what we say because the government is doing I think a lot. Could they do better? Yes, I definitely think they could do better. Uh, you just have to look how they've done operated in France and in Germany, for example, uh, whereby they are taking a percentage of the business's turnover and paying that uh, and paying furlough. Uh, uh, you know, it's there's definitely a lot more we can do because otherwise we're not going to get out of this. And there's not going to be many restaurants or pubs or hotels or, or bars for people to enjoy when we do get out of this. Mm. Well, we're sort of supposed to be one of the big three economies, aren't we, with France and Germany? And it keeps getting wheeled out what they're doing. It's the same in, in rents. They seem to have a sort of tax relief for landlords so that there's this shared burden. We just seem to keep kicking the can down down the road with this moratorium. Why do you think that, that, that Britain isn't you know, up there with France and Germany in, in its support? I think it should be a shared burden. You're absolutely right. And uh, and then don't get me started on insurance as well. Uh, <laughs> in, Fran in France, the insurance operators are, are now being uh, bullied and shamed by the restaurateurs and hoteliers and the government to cough up. Um, now, I, I, you know, I, I think the, the way the insurance companies have looked at us, uh, the hospitality industry, uh, it's shameful, absolutely shameful. How can they look at themselves in the mirror in the morning? I do not know. You know, I, I had business interruption uh, clearly on my policy and they, they have just ignored it and uh, hidden behind uh, you know, absolutely pitiful excuses uh, that uh, my policy is not, not fit. Well, I'm going to fight this, and like a lot of restaurateurs, uh, it, it's shameful. The, the way that we're being treated is shameful. Yeah, it's a mess, and there's enough traumas in trying to get through this with, without those um, additional hassles. I, I want to concentrate just very briefly to finish off. Uh, we, can't, we can't finish on a downer, Michelle. We've got to look at the future, and, and hopefully there's some cheer. One thing that's definitely cheerful is you've been, uh, you've been back on the telly, back on the BBC again, which has been great over Christmas. Um, you famously fell out with them back in 24, uh, 2014 over the fact that, that Gary Lineker was the only host allowed to advertise potatoes. Um, I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek. Tongue Evidently, you, you didn't burn your bridges or have the people that you fell out with at that time gone? How come you're back on the, on, on the telly? No, yeah, it, it, yeah, I fell out or we fell out. But, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't that bad. You know, I, I absolutely, you know, I'm very, very proud and love everything I've, I've done with the BBC. Um, and, and hopefully they feel the same, uh, which actually I know they feel the same. Um, they have changed their stance slightly um, and you know, a little bit more receptive to uh, talent, as they call it, or, or people that they employ in making money out of their name. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I've worked for the BBC since and uh, there's even a couple of projects maybe in the pipeline Um it, if, if we get out of this pandemic soon, then, you know, I will do some more stuff with them. It, it, 
it's silly. It, it was it was a bust up over something silly. Yeah, well, we're all glad that you, you didn't burn the bridges too bad and throw too many things at them because it, it's great. You, you come across so well. Um, just looking then, last thing, you know, so many years you've been doing this, you've been in the sector. I'm interested, I suppose, in in what motivates you and you're 60 now. If you look at maybe your 70th birthday, so look in 10 years time and you're, and you're looking back into the uh, the last decade, what would put a big grin on your face? Are there some sort of particular things that you would love to achieve uh, in the next 10 years that you can look back on and, and raise a glass on your 70th? Yeah, well, wow. Um, well, I'm immensely proud of um, my daughter uh, and my son-in-law. So, so to see them uh, achieve what they've achieved so far, um, I would love to see them get out of this pandemic and, and you know, survive and do well. Uh, for me at Le Gavroche, look, I've been around a long time and, it, you know, if... If everything really does go pear-shaped and I have to say, look, we're not going to reopen or, you know, things just, you know, just stop, yeah, I've had a good time. But, but I want to see the next generation do well. And that's so important for me, to see the next generation do well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed in many regards. My, my, my daughter's had a little bouncy boy. Uh, so I'm a grandfather now. And that gives me so much joy. Uh, so in 10 years' time, hopefully, you know, I can take him to a – uh, a football match and we can go and watch a, a live game with all the crowd and, and have a good time. That's what I want to do in 10 years' time. Perfect. Well, that's true hospitality, isn't it? It's not about things. It's about spending time with people, which is what it's what it's all about, particularly with your family. Thank you so much for being very generous with your time and, and coming on and having a chat. I've really enjoyed it. If people want to follow your adventures and, and see what you're up to, is there a particular website or social media channel that you move, you, you use more than others, Michelle? Um, well, yes, I am on, on Twitter. And it is me. It's uh, 100% me. It's not somebody else. Uh, so, yeah, Michelle Rue. Uh, and uh, we, we do Instagram um, as well, Le Gavroche Instagram. And, of course, the website and the eShop is always good fun to, to look out for stuff to buy and, uh, uh, and what we do. There you go. Perfect. Well, I, would, I will put links up to all of those uh, in the show notes that go with this episode. But best of luck uh, navigating the rest of this pandemic, and uh, hopefully we get to meet in person at some point on the other side of this. But thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Okay, there we have it. Thanks again to Michelle for taking part in the podcast and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. If you did, please do me a favour. Can you go to the website, send me a message? It's always lovely to hear from you. There's a simple contact form on there and a five-star rating on your podcast player of choice really helps me continue to motivate guests to come on the show. So that is a win-win for both of us. I will put up links as discussed in the show notes to Michelle's online shop and his social media channels on the humansofhospitality.co.uk website. Just head to the episodes page or type Rue in the search bar and those notes will appear. Or to make it even easier, why not sign up for my weekly newsletter where every Monday you will then get a short and sharp email reminding you about that week's guest with links to anything useful right in your inbox. No spam, just me. Again, easy to do on the sign-up form at the bottom of the homepage of the website. Okay, that's it. Enjoy your weeks. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back early doors next Monday morning with a brand new episode. Cheers.